we really are about empowering the research company to enter into this new tech world, right? They can't make a multi-million dollar investment and they, they do have a knowledge gap because they haven't been in it in the same way as their vendors have over the last 10 years. So we really believe we can be the vehicle that helps give them very simple tools that have a ton of power that will help bridge them to introduce immediate efficiency, immediate profit enhancement, but also bridge them into a more automated world that has that foundation of data quality and quality overall. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I'm your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the pleasure of speaking with Terrence McCarran, who is the CEO and founder of Opinion Route, based here in downtown Cleveland. Opinion Route, which Terrence has now bootstrapped his way to over eight figures in revenue, is a market research, data collection services, and sample technology firm, which <laughs> at a high level means Opinion Route helps market researchers produce accurate results. But we'll do a much deeper dive here into the terminology and business over the course of our conversation. Terence's career spans 20 plus years in the market research industry, but he seized the entrepreneurial opportunity to build his own company in the space back in 2013 when he moved his family specifically here to Cleveland in order to start Opinion Route. I can say with confidence that we are quite lucky to have Terence here in the land as both a founder and as a mentor to others. So please enjoy our conversation. So before we dive into your background and, and the work you're doing at Opinion Route, I, I thought it would be actually useful to start with some kind of terms and definitions because market research is one of those concepts where, at least personally, I feel like it's easy to wager a guess into what it entails, but there is some opacity around what it actually is. So I'd love to start if you could just provide us some context on what is market research and what does this industry look like? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, so market research is actually a sector it has been around for about 100 years. I don't think a lot of people realize <laughs> that, but the context is we're sort of in an era of data-driven decision-making on a corporate level. And the way I look at it is market research is sort of the industry that fuels all of that, okay? So there are a variety of different methods, techniques, technologies that can lead to some more insights into a target audience or a market. And our sector is, a, is about an $80 billion global sector that houses a real diverse subgroup of professionals and technologies. It's comprised of you know, everything from a, a lot of smart people, PhDs, statisticians, big data, analytics, technology platforms, BI tools, survey tools. So uh, a, a big one that's been in the news a lot lately from a business standpoint is, is Qualtrics. And then there's SurveyMonkey and uh, all kinds of service companies that wrap around all those technologies to really help corporations understand their strategy or derive better strategy as a result of just understanding their audience. And, and what drew you to this world of, of market research? Yeah, I wish I had some purpose-driven story to really <laughs> you know, make it sound like it was manifest destiny, but my story is a, a little simpler. And I tell it because I think it's common for a lot of people in our world you know, when I was in college, there wasn't like there is now, there wasn't a lot of analytics or market research degrees that people could pursue. So for me, I had my heart set into getting into the management consulting world my old senior year in college. It turned out not to work out. And I found out about three weeks before graduation. And I was sort of in scramble mode. All my friends had jobs. So I was on a, an abbreviated hunt. And I wound up finding this uh, company called Survey Sampling, which was about a mile and a half from my campus, Fairfield University in Connecticut. And uh, I was able to land a job as an account manager just in time for graduation. So I very much stumbled into the sector, which is a pretty common story. And uh, it's been so good to me, I've never left. Yeah, it's just grown on you over time. <laughs> for sure, for sure. You know, there were some parallels, like 
the political polling side was always fun. I studied a bunch of that in college. So there were premises from my coursework that definitely applied, which made it work. But uh, yeah, it was just happenstance and that's as simple as it was. Yeah. I didn't realize the the history of the industry. You, you know, you mentioned as far back as a hundred years and just with an understanding of how much technology and data has to be involved now compared to what it must have looked like back then. Uh, what what did it look like back then? <laughs> I'm struggling to even like yeah, I mean, think about what it how it worked. Yeah, I, I laugh because no one thinks much about it, but like Nielsen TV ratings, right? There was actually a guy named Nielsen, right? Uh, yeah. Gallup, which is one of the most preeminent political polling companies, which is much bigger than that now. But there was actually a guy named Gallup, right? So the original market research companies were founded with really niche offerings. Like one of the initial market research companies was really just keeping an inventory of pills that were on the shelves of pharmacies around the country. So that was a pharmaceutical index, if you will, that every company subscribed to, to see trends in inventory and products being moved all around the country. There was a publication called Life Magazine, you know, for decades. And Life Magazine started the initial you know, sort of online or not online, but offline magazine <laughs> advertising reader surveys, right? To do recall of the different ads and products that got featured in the magazine. So when you think about it from a consumer communication standpoint, wherever there was product being sold or ads being placed, there was always someone behind the scenes trying to figure out how to quantify what was actually happening in the market. Yeah. So as you make your inroads into the the world of market research, at what point is the flip switched from this is something that I've stumbled into <laughs> as an industry to this is something where I've recognized a problem and I want to build something to solve it? Yeah. So I, I should start by the industry made a major transition around 2002 to 2003, where in the quantitative world, which is where I've always been, I'm a very much a numbers guy. There was a shift that occurred from phone. So the annoying people that would call those landlines yeah. at dinner time and say, hey, I just want your opinion, <laughs> right? Now everything was moving online. So as the access to the internet was becoming more mainstream in households across America, you know, research sort of follows where the consumers are. So the shift to online was inevitable. It really crossed a, a major, you know, sort of pivot juncture, if you will, around that time, 2002, 2003. And I jumped all in on that trend in our industry and left what was a phone data collection company at the time and joined uh, what was, I think, the only online data collection company in existence in Connecticut, which was a firm called Greenfield Online. So that was exciting. And, and we were a bunch of young people. It was a newer method, a newer way of doing things in a very you know, traditional, conservative, you know, change adverse sector, but there was this group of what was a powerhouse of talent that I think we appreciated at the time, but just seeing what happened since uh, all the people that left Greenfield and went on to do great things, we had a really sort of incredible team that drove a lot of change in the sector. And it was a wild ride, but it was an amazingly fun, educational, you know, I always say I had about 20 years worth of business experience in my five years at Greenfield Online. And ultimately, that ended when we sold to Microsoft and I pursued other things. But at that point, that was really where this stopped just being, hey, this sector where I seem pretty smart to a lot of employers to being something that was really ingrained as part of my path and, and my journey in my career. Yeah. So how did you leverage that <laughs> accelerated 20 years of experience into you know, post-acquisition, just taking stock of where the industry had, had moved towards with the shift to online and, and thinking about, you know, what you wanted to do next within the industry? So for me, the, the when I kind of synthesize the things that meant most to me in my time at that company, it was really being on the leading edge of a technology wave of change in the industry. As hard as that was in a traditional sector, traditional mature sector, you know, I saw how wildly successful a business model could be if they leaned into a little bit of change and, and innovation. So for me, that was um, a lesson that I really kept with me as I, as I moved on. Ultimately, I sought out uh, another sort of early stage, but established technology sort of disruptor, if you will, 
And a couple of years later, I wound up uh, leaving North America for a Swedish tech company in our space. And I had another sort of really fun four-year ride there. So me paying attention to sort of what the next wave of change was with a particular eye on technology-driven change really set me up pretty well for the concept behind Opinion Route, which was just looking at some of the unintended consequences that rapid automation had in our sector and led me to sort of create Opinion Route to help market research agencies bridge into the new world, so to speak. So, so what is the problem that Opinion Route is working to solve and, and why this problem of all the problems that you kind of picked up on that pattern recognition? So the one truth that I've really learned in my career is that there's this sort of really important relationship between two stakeholders of market research, and that is the market research company and their data collection partner, or what we would call their sample partner, right? That is sort of a love-hate relationship at times, but it's always been really instrumental to the outcomes and the efficacy of market research in the corporate world. What I've really seen over those last decade or so of automation really taking hold in this next phase of technology-driven change is that it really was one-sided. So the biggest thing that was different from this wave versus my previous wave in 0203 is in 02 and 03, researchers and data collection companies sort of held hands and walked through this wave of change collaboratively. Mm -hmm. But what I really believed was happening and what I saw through my own experience was this automation was really taking hold in half of the relationship. And that was on the sample where the data collection vendor side of the equation. They went all in on automation. They got the benefit of you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of venture capital investment, private equity investment, M&A that really shapes, reshaped the industry on the fly. But meanwhile, the research companies, many of them still operate like it's 10 years ago, right? They have the same expectations, the same processes. And in a lot of ways, it, it I, I was seeing firsthand, it created this huge gap. It was a knowledge gap. It was an opportunity gap. And the power dynamic in that relationship really shifted in favor of the vendor. So now, you, which is weird, because it's sort of like the, the tail wagging the dog, right? So yeah. you have this dynamic now where research firms who don't have the resources or the know-how to really scale in the same way are now at a major disadvantage with their vendors, right? Which is affecting everything in, in terms of data quality. It's affecting where labor sits in terms of the typical relationship, ton of the labor on the data collection side has shifted into the market research house, which is abnormal, but it's the reality of where we are today. So for me, my vantage point in understanding that dynamic between the research agency and the vendor, you know, I kind of felt like I was uniquely positioned to really sit on the side of the research agency and help them bridge that gap into this new complex world. You mentioned sample a, a few times in, in that sure. description. C can you just kind of define that in the context of, of the space? Yeah, happy to do so. So sample outside the context of our industry, I think is widely understood as just being, you know, a subset of a broader thing that gives you just a taste of what that thing is. In our world where we're doing opinion surveys, we don't need to speak to the entire U.S. population to get a read on what the population feels about a given product or service. So generally what's best practice in market research is we just approach a subset of the target audience for that product or service and then administer the survey to that audience. So that whole process is referred to as survey sampling. So that's really what we're talking about. And now, you know, internet-based methods are the dominant approach in that way. Got it. So kind of diving into the nitty gritty of of how these surveys are actually conducted and, and the sampling actually conducted, how do you find the people who are filling up? Like when you talk about target audience, how are they procured, aggregated, sourced, routed to, to the right people? And, and how do you think about who is filling out these surveys? 
Yeah. So important question, because I think we've all been hit up to take a survey, <laughs> whether it's on the Dunkin' Donuts uh, drive through line and the receipt or some other obtrusive way sometimes even. Yes, We're yes. in the camp of really permission-based, very much double opted in. We're not the bait and switchy type, right? <laughs> we are in a sector of surveys that uh, compensates consumers, gives them really clear understanding of what they're opting into, their time commitment, the topic of the survey, and the transparency behind that, I think, is a hallmark of, of kind of what we do and has enabled our industry to keep the trust factor really in place with uh, consumers in you know, countries all over the world, really. So who's filling out surveys? It could be anybody, right? They, they might fill out a survey because they were approached to join a survey-taking community. They may have responded to an ad on social media. They may have seen an offer in a favorite gaming app on their phone where they can't quite get to the next level unless they either pay or do some other revenue generating event for the app owner, right? And surveys being a really common one that consumers like because it doesn't cost them anything. So wherever consumers are, there is a way to try and recruit them to see an ad or take surveys. So that's very common, I think, and it's pretty ubiquitous for anyone that uses any technology online. So surveys could be anything from about your grocery shopping habits. It could be targeting very senior level IT decision makers at large companies. It could be among your doctor and, and any audience and every audience. But if there's a, a corporation that's trying to sell a product or service and they want to take a smarter approach, you know, that target audience could be approached to take a survey. So, so getting at the, I think the crux of what I understand Opinion Route is focused on, how, how do you think about the quality of those results that you're getting? And I'd love if we just introduce the concept of fraud here. Yeah. Yeah. So two, two concepts all, all sort of married together is fraud and then um, its relationship to this automation trend that I've alluded to. So one of the most tangible results of the technology wave of innovation that we've seen over the last decade has been the rise of technologies that route respondents from a source to an appropriate survey. Now, a decade ago, we used to call those engines routers, right? But now they're more commonly referred to as programmatic engines, right? Or programmatic marketplaces. And that implies all kinds of things on the techie side, but it's basically a really sophisticated algorithm-driven tech platform that matches uh, a consumer with the right survey. So in these platforms, there are a variety of dollars being transacted. So survey takers get their cut in terms of an incentive, but publishers or website owners that drive their readership or their uh, members into a survey engine also get compensated. So there are multiple points of monetary transactions that are occurring. And every time that exists, and every time it's highly automated, you're going to attract the attention of fraudsters, right? And in 2020, as we went through COVID, and we had all kinds of people at home with all kinds of free time, there was an in incredible rise in fraud in our sector. So what does that look like? That's sort of a common question I even get asked by researchers. And I, I usually tell this story to just illustrate how things have changed from even a, a few years ago till now in 2021. So a few years ago, I was at an industry conference and a, a very uh, well-known company in our sector called JD Power and Associates, which everyone knows from yep. car commercials. And commercials. Just regular, <laughs> yeah, regular consumer, right? But J.D. Power got up and they gave this presentation where they basically confessed that they had uh, their data and all their auto work had gotten infiltrated by bots. And bots are there are good bots, there are bad bots. But this was sort of the new wave of fraud for four-ish years ago, where there was just these automated scripts that got into a survey, filled out all the questions, and it didn't get caught for however many quarters. Uh, and then J.D. Power really confessed about this, but it gave them a real unique opportunity to sort of open up the conversation in our sector about how big a problem is bots and surveys. And they quantified the problem as being somewhere between two and three percent of all survey starts were by bot activity based on their analysis. 
So fast forward to now, an opinion route actually has a proprietary fraud prevention tool called CleanID. And one of the things we do for all our clients in the industry at large is we report in the same way JD Power did a few years ago, we report on common fraud trends. What does it look like? It's not bots anymore. That's pretty well mitigated, but things like data center activity, click farms, Tor browser usage, all kinds of you know, dark web fraudulent activity that shows up in surveys. And um, from April, we could see that the, from the total universe of survey starts, about 16% of them are fraudulent attempts. So in a period of just a few short years, it's more than increased by five times. And it's hitting that point from a statistical significance standpoint where it's a, it's a severe problem for researchers and statisticians in our world. So that's really kind of uh, the backdrop on what it is, what it looks like today, how prevalent it is, but also there is a correlation like, um, you know, automation technology has been great for our sector, but there are some unintended consequences that we've been seeing for quite a long time as well. And one of, I feel like our charters at Opinion Route is to be that voice of balance that really helps market researchers understand not just that there are benefits, but there are problems, but you don't have to be paralyzed by that. We can help bring you into the new world, take advantage of the good stuff, minimize the bad stuff and get all the efficiencies that tech offers. What is the incentive for nefarious actors and just in the evolution of fraud over time from these you know, scripted programmatic things to the more advanced versions of that that it's evolved into now? What is the honeypot at the end of that, that rainbow for, the, for, the, for those kinds of actors? Why, why is there fraud? Automated payment as a survey taker. So for a $4.99 a month investment, that's $4.99 investment into a VPN that masks your IP address and geolocation, that kind of thing, you might be able to make a hundred bucks in a week, right? So that's one level. I deem that the lower level, but it's real and it attracts people, especially since there are billions of dollars being transacted in online sample globally just as a direct result of our, our piece of the industry. But the other side of it is even richer, which is a similar problem that I think digital advertising faces. But a lot of the supply chain for big sample companies, when they buy from other websites to drive traffic into their engine, they often pay per click, right? So all they're paying for is you get a click into our engine and we're going to pay it. So there's a big incentive for people to start up a fake website, generate clicks in an automated fashion, run it through uh, VPN masks and other kinds of fraudulent activity, and they will be a supplier in the survey ecosystem that might generate millions of dollars, right? Hopefully it doesn't get that far before it gets caught. But the big difference, I'd like to compare it to digital advertising a lot because we all read in the news about fraud problems at YouTube with their metrics, Facebook, and really, any digital ad platform. The big difference in our world is the click into the survey is, is data and the data is the product, right? So in advertising, ultimately that fraud gets washed out if the sales of the product through the campaign cross that threshold of what fraud impact was and it's still profitable. But in our world, if 16% of the clicks into the survey are fake, then that data, the results, the insights are really compromised. And that's just something our industry just can't afford. Taking a, a step back, but, but running with that, I'm curious when, when you think about the founding of Opinion Route and the expertise that you have in this space, which it sounds like has evolved pretty significantly just over the last few years, when you were starting it, was it the same intuition of the direction that the space was headed and positioning Opinion Route to? evolve with the industry or what was the initial you know vision for opinion route and yeah i'd love to just hear kind of the, the early days the founding story and you know what what you were actually selling you know how, how is it that you were <laughs> you were making money in the early days i mean right now we talk a lot about fraud because of how fast it's growing and, and frankly because we're really good at preventing it mm -hmm. on a survey basis so it's one of those big problems that actually has a solution right but in the early days of Opinion Route, even before we hit this sort of escalation, 
fraud fits in a broader bucket that's really important in our industry and has been forever. And that's just, we call it data quality. So data quality is sort of an umbrella concept that the way we explain it, it represents three categories, right? It's what's happening on respondent's device, what's happening with who the person says they are, right? Mm-hmm. And then how engaged are they and what do their answers look like actually in the survey? So we call that device person project. So device is the fraud that we've spent a lot of time talking about already. Another rising problem is if you really like taking surveys and you join a bunch of websites that incentivize you to take surveys, you learn pretty quickly that if you take cheeseburger surveys, you're not going to get paid nearly as much as if you are an IT enterprise decision maker, right, who can speak to Apple and Microsoft about how you make your cloud hosting service decisions, right? So that sort of realization from a savvy survey taker has created that person problem, which is this person really who they say they are? And then their engagement level in the project itself, in the survey itself. So when when I started Opinion Route, I understood there was a data quality issue. I understood that all the automation was increasing that pretty consistently. And mostly we took a services-based approach. We really analyzed all the different vendor options and how they recruited, what their approach was to recruiting survey, survey takers themselves. And we really would create custom field plans that optimized the higher validation approaches and minimized or eliminated those approaches that really didn't know anything about who the survey taker was until they hit the survey. So that was really how we did it. We were able to prove that from a real quantitative data-driven standpoint, that we could improve data quality every single time. But as the dynamics evolved and continued to escalate, we had to get better and not just rely on our know-how, but we actually then needed to start investing in our own technologies that would combat some of the com- complex problems that were evolving real time in the in the lifespan of opinion round. So in that transition from you know more of the services offering in the beginning to some kind of productization of the work that you were doing, it, was that just capitalized from the initial kind of services work that you were doing and, and reinvesting that back into the company? Or was there initial funding involved? Yeah, it, it was absolutely all funded by our clients. So our growth trajectory, which has been pretty consistent and it, it, it's been um, a source of pride for me, frankly, it's really been our clients that have enabled us to invest in the next wave of data quality assurance, Right. So, you know, you could say we bootstrapped it for sure. But along the way, the the idea being that it's forced us to be relevant in terms of what we are prioritizing from a data quality and other technology advancements, too. So our vision is beyond just data quality, but data quality is a a core sort of foundational component to everything we build and everything we do. So it made a lot of sense to start there. But yeah, like literally, if clients don't think they need it, it it just doesn't make sense for us to invest in it. So our stakeholders, our shareholders in a lot of ways really are our clients. And it's forced us to be constantly up up to speed on their pains, what they're seeing. But it's led to a really nice dynamic where we have this iterative conversation going with some of the most exciting market research firms in the industry. It's a feedback loop. They're constantly giving us what they're seeing on a trend basis and give us the opportunity to really iterate and evolve to solve their problems. It's been fun. Yeah. How do you reconcile that kind of immediate relation that you have with the with the customers and solving immediate needs and having mm-hmm. it being funded by that with some of the ideas you have that are more out there in the future and building towards that in the way that VC funding typically finances that kind of more future activity. How how do you think about that having bootstrapped the company? It's a great question because we're doing both very actively. So there's one premise that we really operate with in that our, so we have a tech business and we have a services business. Our services business is the first client for every piece of technology we built, right? So in effect, what I've had to do is build a very lean, very tight, profitable business along the way here, right? And the demands on that profitability have grown 
as we've wanted to get more ambitious and think five years, 10 years out into the future with our tech roadmap, right? And then think about how to get there. So there's, a, there's an interesting component in everything we've built where a technology solves a problem like fraud, but simultaneously, it also enhances our own profitability profile of our services business. So we are all, our own case study in sort of the twofold benefit of our technology in a lot of ways. And we talk about that pretty openly. So uh, I'll give you an example. During COVID last year, when revenue dropped industry-wide, you know, we had a choice. Were we going to just continue as is and just hope things turned around? Or were we going to use that time to really do something big in our business? And what we were able to do is really uh, put into action certain one, certain tech products, two of them named Clean ID and Valid ID, and what it, the impact on our P&L was we're able to raise our gross margin threshold by 10 percentage points because through all the efficiency and all the fraud suppression, we're able to become a lot smarter and a lot leaner in our purchase pricing along the way. So that's a perfect example of our products in our own business, not just solving a major problem, but actually creating some more investment just from the same, and we were flat last year, right? So just from the same revenue line, we were able to create more investment opportunity by just deploying our own solutions. Yeah, no, eating your your own dog food, I feel like it it pans out in a few ways. Just it forces you to think about that efficiency, but also, at least in my experience, it instills some kind of empathy for the people that you're also selling it to and that who are also going to be using it because you have to use it yourself. And we don't have any... Uh any users that are as demanding as their own employees, <laughs> right? I mean, right? um, they want the best technology we can build, right? And they, they will have no problem giving feedback. Oh, this is broken. This is terrible. And for us, we feel like that's part of our tech secret sauce because we're able to, by the time we allow a client to actually use tech, it's gone through some of the most demanding critics we can ever put it in front of, which is our own employees, you know? Um, so I think it's made us a lot better on multiple angles, but it's also brought efficiency and more balance into the lives of our employees as well. So just kind of taking stock of where Opinion Route is today, can you kind of paint a picture on the technology front, on the services front? You know, where where is the company? How how big are you? And yeah, just kind of the, the overview of of where Opinion Route is today. Sure. We're still very much, if you look at our, our revenue line driven by our services business, which is quadrupled in the last five years. So we've undergone rapid growth on that side. Tech, we're about a year into actually licensing our tech products into the market. We'll undergo about a 6x increase on our tech revenue this year. And all of that's been very data quality driven product based. So we have four products in the market right now that, that generate subscription revenue for us, which we're really excited about, not just what it is now, but what those things can be in the future. Um, but we're also at an interesting pivot point in our technology side of our business. So we have spent the last year and a half really upgrading our internal project management technology platform that we call the Navigator, which was first built in 2014. And we've consistently iterated over time as our needs as a growing business have evolved. But one of the big components, maybe about half of our dev effort over the last year and a half has been dedicated to completely revamping both the front end and the back end with the Navigator so that we can introduce that into the market. So one of our core things that we've said from the beginning, and I've even mentioned a couple of times here, is we really are about empowering the research company to enter into this new tech world, right? They can't make a multi-million dollar investment and they, they do have a knowledge gap because they haven't been in it in the same way as their vendors have over the last 10 years. So we really believe we can be the vehicle that helps give them very simple tools that have a ton of power that will help bridge them to introduce immediate efficiency, immediate profit enhancement, but also bridge them into a more automated world that has that foundation of data quality and quality overall. When you think about that vision, how does it translate to the company culture itself and, and the company that, that you're actually building? You know, I think if we, from the biggest thing it does from that vision is give people a, a shared mission, right? 
that's a value-based toward the client base. Um, I'll just tell a story that I, I love telling. There is a real human toll associated with a lack of automation in our client's company, yet they live in a highly automated world. And the biggest toll that is, is a human toll. It becomes a 24-7 job if you work in our industry, but you don't have the technology to make your job a little easier. So I love telling the story about one of our clients for years named Courtney. Courtney, one point, had started firing off emails over a weekend uh, to our team, and it, I was copied on the email thread. And come the following Tuesday, I, I just sort of reached out to her, got her on the phone. I was like, Courtney, what are you doing <laughs> on a Saturday and a Sunday where you're sending all these emails? Like, happy to help you whenever you need it. But genuinely, tell me about your week. Like, what is happening in your week that it had to be Saturday or Sunday? And is there something we can do to free up your weekends, right? And what wound up happening was Courtney, actually, she started, like, her voice started cracking. And she started kind of, like, taking a moment just to collect herself. And she wound up telling me what her week was like working in a research company that's really manual in an automated world. And look, we, we're all used to it. I think it's not just a unique story in research. I think every sector deals with it. But the alerts going off on your phone nonstop, always having email in your inbox, um, always needing to check on projects because if you take your eyes off of it, things can go, can go wrong. You know, there's a real human toll associated with the dynamic right now. So we think about Courtney. We, we have other little metaphors around the office that our, our own team has come up with, like the Friday night backpack. We're always bringing our laptop to parties on Friday nights in our backpack, just in case, just in case. And one of our charters, and we talk about this openly, is like, look, we want to sort of dissolve that on-demand 24-7, everyone has to work at all times dynamic which has been going on for probably close to 20 years. For me, it started with my first BlackBerry, I think in 2003. <laughs> and, and we wanna be part of a wave of change that helps give people back in our industry, you know, some balance, right? That doesn't really exist. And I think that, that vision that we have connects very intimately to the experience that project managers in our industry, researchers, sample people in our industry, really live through in a way that has become accepted, but maybe during COVID has given everyone an opportunity to think twice about, right? Is this really what we want with our lives? Like right, right. kind of enjoy this time with my family. Maybe I should dedicate more, more time on a consistent basis to that. So for us, I think it's been, it's part of a broader wave of society self-evaluation. And I think it's given our people sort of a renewed lease on life that, not only is my company working to make my life easier, but to have that sort of impact in the industry on a wide basis feels like a worthy mission, I think, for, for the right people. And certainly we tend to attract those people in our, into our team. Yeah, there's a term that is gaining this popularity in, in, in my industry in, in healthcare called uh, robotic process automation, the RPA. And it, it was just this idea that a lot of companies now are building software robots so that people don't have to be robots. Um, yeah. so it, it resonates yeah, a lot. I, I can totally relate. We, we talk a lot about DSS, decision support systems, right? So when you track, which we've done with our team, tell me the top five tasks you're doing after hours or on the weekend. And it's all stuff that literally is just looking at data and taking an action based on what they're reading, right? All of that can be automated. So what we want to do is free up our people to give that next layer of guidance and consultation to clients, right? How do we make this project finish a little faster, a little cheaper, a little with a little more depth, giving a little more value-add consultation? Let people do the thinking, the value-add, the relationship building, and let you know the decision support system or the RPA sort of take over and really automate as much as we can that's just rote, repetitive task mastering, right? Yeah. So I, I want to dive a little deeper on culture and, and tie in you know, the, the Cleveland component of this as well and, and how you think about the relationship between opinion routes and Cleveland's culture and just the, the role that Cleveland is, has played in the company and you know, going back to the founding of it, you know, what, what actually brought you to, to Cleveland? Yeah, I'm, I'm not born and raised here, right? <laughs> um, I, I am an East Coast guy. I grew up in New Jersey. And as a result, um, 
I have a lot of opinions and I have no, no shame in sharing them. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think of, I love telling a story about my last company, that Swedish company I mentioned earlier. I, I worked for two just really great guys, great leaders. Uh, one was Bo Matson, the founder and CEO. Another guy's Richard Thornton, who was sort of our head of sales at the time, but went on to bigger things after. And we were in Barcelona one night, just having some drinks too late. And uh, Bo had, had asked me something that I'd never been asked before. And he, he just said, look, you're, you're running North America for us. I started this years before we found you. You must have a bunch of opinions on what I screwed up, right? What could I have done better? What would you have done differently? And it was an interesting question, uh, one, because it, it showed his humility in, in learning, even with all the success he had in his career, he was still learning and still trying to get that kind of input. And it gave me an opportunity to sort of think in that way. And the answer I came out with, which is really funny, because um, this is way before I, I thought about opinion route, but I, I said to him, well, look, you know, you made a, a choice that a lot of startups in our industry make, and is you really chose the most expensive labor markets on the most competitive talent basis in the US to start start your offices, right? New York, San Fran, LA, you did it. I mean, I was in New York, right? You, you hired me, right? <laughs> and I'm glad you did, don't get me wrong, but you, you did what everyone does. And when you're, you have a limited amount of cash, you know, I really believe there's gotta be a leaner, more effective way to do that without swimming in the most competitive pools and most expensive people. And he said, wow, that's really interesting. He said, so where, where would you have started things? And it took me a good couple of minutes. And I said to him, <laughs> you know, a city like Cleveland. I, I would have done it in a city like Cleveland. So that was like the first part of the story. And I just sort of like, it, and I didn't stop thinking about that for days. Like, did I give the right answer? But at the end of the day, it made sense. So fast forward a year later, you know, I sort of caught the entrepreneurial bug myself. And I, you know, I sort of told my wife, broke the news to her, hey, <laughs> I want to quit my job, and, but I want to sell the house. I want to move. I want to go start my own company, but I don't want to bring on capital. So I want to do this lean and I want to do it in a smart market. You know, she didn't know that whole story about Barcelona, but we <laughs> went through a whole evaluation process. A so long story short, she said, Cleveland, Cleveland, Cleveland checks all of our boxes. We should go look at houses in Cleveland. And you know, basically everything I hoped Cleveland would be, I sort of proved out pretty quickly in the first few years, and I'm still proving out eight years later. But the premise, the thesis, if you will, was that Cleveland had a lot of great schools, a lot of highly educated people. Uh, even though our industry didn't exist here, I felt like there would be a talent pool that I could really draw from in ample numbers. I felt it was a great place to raise a family, but had a cultural community component that it felt like what I was trying to build would really be synergistic with. And the work ethic. I mean, the, the work ethic just that's embedded multi-generationally in Northeast Ohio or Cleveland, I wanted in our business, right? So those were sort of the main points relevant to the business that I thought I'd find, all while being able to pay people a really nice living wage where they could stretch it a lot farther here than I'd be able to offer or they'd be able to pay for in the New York market, right? And so that's what I did. I, I've, I've proven that out. I think I, within three years, I'm like, man, this, this worked out exactly well. But even now that we're in a new era, that technology-driven, longer-term vision, you know, I think some of our premises of, you know, doing things the right way, adding value at every turn, I don't, I don't really have to teach that with our team here. They, they, they show up here with all of those kinds of characteristics and attributes and it's made growing and scaling the business that much easier. When you reflect on some of those initial hypotheses, you know, having seen a lot of them pan out, I'm curious what you know with the opinions that you have, <laughs> with the time that you've spent here now. What what are yeah. some of the insights that you've gleaned from building and growing a, a company here in Cleveland, and with, with that outside perspective, and what did you maybe get wrong about your initial hypotheses? <laughs> the first thing I got wrong was not understanding the east side, west side divide. Um, <laughs> and I set up our first offices deep in the suburbs on the east side, right? I never realized that driving 35 minutes from the west side into, into the heights would feel like uh, taking a flight to work every day for a lot of people. So that was my first mistake. <laughs> that was a, a, little, a little lesson that I had to learn. But we're downtown now, so, so we learned. 
We learned from that pretty well. And that, I mean, as much as I kid about that, there is a robust talent pool of uh, culturally aligned people with diverse skill set that we have been able to really track into the company from all around the region, which is great. Even seeing resumes now from the Akron, Canton area, it's even stretching that far, which has been great. The one thing I, I also didn't really learn until I was in it for about a year uh, was just how rare my story was, right? Moving from a coast to really do what I think a lot of people in Cleveland want, which is we want to attract entrepreneurs to start up, you know, startup companies, in particular tech companies in Cleveland. Like, we want to do that, right? I did that. <laughs> you know, I did that. I moved here and I started here. But a couple things that I wish were a little bit easier, I'm sort of past to a certain extent now, but still dealing with in other yeah, yeah. ways. Lay them out, lay them uh, out. Yeah, so I'm hedging, <laughs> I'm hedging. But the first thing is, it, it, I felt like it took me a while to earn people's trust because people were so skeptical that this guy from the New York area would move from New Jersey into Cleveland to start this business. Like, what's this guy's story, right? So I sort of had to prove that I was gonna stick around before that second meeting could ever occur, right? So it took a good year, year and a half before people realized, wow, this guy, he must be staying, right? And the second thing is I, in the early days, took full advantage of a lot of the educational components offered in the startup ecosystem in Cleveland but now I'm at that phase where, you know, we've become an eight-figure revenue company. We're transitioning into much bigger plans. It's, it, I'm finding a hole in the, the startup or scale-up, you know, scene, if you will, to really help entrepreneurs who have crossed that threshold. They have product market fit. They have a nice business. They have rapid growth. Like the ecosystem around supporting that next phase of growth to get us from an eight-figure to a nine-figure company, right? Where is that ecosystem approach? And it may be it's um, networking, maybe it's funding and financing, which who knows could be a part of our future, maybe not. But that part feels like a big gap in the Cleveland ecosystem right now, so much so that a lot of the relationships that I've really valued, and there's been some unbelievable people that have supported me along the way just who I really have become trusted advisors for me just because they think it's fun what I'm doing and it's fun to sort of see us grow. But still, most the most common bits of advice I get is, well, go seek uh, extra resources from the coast, which I find really ironic, right? Because I left the coast <laughs> to come here okay. and do this here. And I want one of the legacies of Opinion Route to be that this was a, a Cleveland growth story, right? That this was a Cleveland growth story that really showed that you could do this here. And we have a services story, we have a technology story. It could really be a case study for other like-minded entrepreneurs that are really trying to start something exciting for themselves. Yeah, it's cool to see the Cleveland chip on your shoulder as a yeah. <laughs> someone who moved to Cleveland. I guess I've inherited that without all the pain of watching the Browns for decades, right? <laughs> but I guess I do have a little bit of that after eight years for sure. Yeah, I, I hope you can tell that story as well and serve <laughs> as uh, that example. Yeah, no, I'm trying. I, I, you know, to me, I could have, I could have built this. I had a great network in New York, um, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. A lot of relationships out there still rooting me on and helping me along the way particularly industry context. But for me, I, you know, I could have built exactly what I built here in New York and it wouldn't make any impact at all whatsoever, right? But the opportunity to do something in an exciting long-term growth story itself in Cleveland was just too compelling, right? It was too enticing for me to not try and do both things with Opinion Route. So it continues to be fun. I'm not bitter at all, right? Just to clear that up. <laughs> um, but there is opportunity that I see, and maybe that'll be my next phase. So as we continue to see success with Opinion Route, maybe I'll be part of that wave that helps create those opportunities for the, for the next Opinion Routes. Yeah. Well, with, uh, with this focus on Cleveland, you know, one of the things that we do in the podcast is everyone is kind of painting a collective collage of their favorite hidden gems throughout the city. So not necessarily the favorite things, but things that other people may not know about. 
And I, I am very curious. I feel like you'll have some good, some good insights on, on, on some hidden gems here in Cleveland. Yeah. There's so much people from here. Take for granted. It's unbelievable. I know. You're probably the best uh, person to ask this question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, the one thing and uh, I would say we, as a family, we did a lot of hiking. So everyone talks about the Cleveland Metro parks, but I'm going to be a lot more specific than that in the Metro parks, buttermilk falls, there's a little spot underneath the cliff with creek running through it. That is literally one of the most beautiful places. If you're into the outdoors and hiking at all, it's literally one of the most play- beautiful places to go find a little serenity in the madness <laughs> and a little bonding time with the kids and the wife alike. So it's this, this little gem, I think, that we keep coming back to. Other than that, I, I can you know talk about all the restaurants we love and the art scene and, and all of that. But from a gem in a particular specific location, that that's one that's our favorite. That sounds like a like a special one, no doubt. Well, Terrence, I uh, I really appreciate you coming on and and sharing your story. I think it's it's one that needs to be heard. I'm excited to to see how how you guys grow from here. Jeffrey, thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Appreciate the chance to come on and and tell my story. This has been great. Yeah, for sure. If uh, if folks have anything that they would like to follow up with you about, where is the best place for them to, to reach you, Terrence? LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn. So obviously, just look me up, Terrence McCarran at Opinion Route. But I'm also a, uh, a a sneaky active Twitter user as well, which would be <laughs> at C. McCarran. And I'm a particular fan of a lot of the local photographers and, and Cleveland cityscapes. So uh, if you're into that as well, follow me on Twitter. Awesome. That sounds good. Well, thank you again, Terrence. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on this show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. 